0: You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at CityOnahillDFW dot com. Welcome in to the final week of the ultimate road trip. If you're a guest this morning, we have been walking through uh, the just a few passages, really, of each of the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And we conclude our time here this morning in this series. And there are a lot of reasons I really wish we had more time in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is such a weird little book of the Bible, isn't it? It marks this sort of transitional period for the people of God between uh, the old covenant and the new covenant, and all kinds of crazy things take place. The arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, healings, miracles, confronting demons, persecution. There's so many wild things that take place that honestly, I think make us a little uncomfortable when we talk about some of them, which in my mind means we should probably talk about them more so we better understand what the Bible means, right? One of the things that we see in the book of Acts, a fairly controversial practice, really because of the modern practice of it is something that we're going to talk about this morning. And that is the act of speaking in tongues. Um, This is a Baptist church. Some of you just got goosebumps. You're like, we're gonna what, right? Speaking in tongues makes us uncomfortable because we really don't understand it. We don't really know what to fully make of it. Some passages seem to indicate that it is purely evangelistic. And there are other passages that seem to indicate that it was something meant to be practiced in the church. Some of them seem to indicate these were known languages and others indicate not as clearly what was going on. Even church history is mixed on this. And if you know me, you know that church history is a a huge part of my love for theology. I did my my master of theology, my second master's degree in early church history. I love early church. The early church can't really agree on this issue. So for example, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, lived between 140 and 203 A.D. He wrote, As also we hear that many brethren in the church possess prophetic gifts and speak through the Spirit with all kinds of tongues and bring to light the secret things of men for their good and declare the mysteries of God. I mean, it seems like during this time in the first century, that this gift of tongues was being practiced in church services. This was roughly 100, 150 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then we get to the fourth century, and we find an individual named John Chrysostom in the third century, probably third century, not fourth century. He wrote in homilies on 1 Corinthians. This whole passage, passage talking about the gift of tongues, is very obscure but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer taking place. And why do they not happen now? Why look now the cause too of this obscurity has produced us again another question, namely, why did they then happen and now do so no more? By Chris Chrysostom's time, the gift of tongues were so out of practice, they didn't even understand how it worked nor did they understand why they stopped happening to begin with. History is very unclear. It's not as clear as we'd like it to be on this particular topic. And so we're going to talk about this topic this morning, and I want to say up front a couple of things concerning our time here together. First, my aim, this is very important for you to hear, my aim is not to give a thoroughly comprehensive biblical view of speaking in tongues. We don't have time for that. That would take several weeks probably to do that because we would have to engage uh, not only the book of Acts, but we'd have to engage the Apostle Paul. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. And we simply do not have time to do that. I do think it's interesting, as a side note, that Paul only addresses this particular practice and those three chapters of the same book and nowhere else in any of his letters. I do think that is fascinating and worth mentioning. Even in 1 Corinthians, where he does mention it, he's correcting their behavior, and he even says that it's the least important gift of all the spiritual gifts. So regardless of what you believe about speaking in tongues, Paul doesn't seem to emphasize it that much, and he's more interested in correcting the bad practices than encouraging the good. Either way, my aim is not to give a comprehensive view by looking at the entirety of the Bible, but rather to examine the practice in the book of Acts alone to try to determine if there's a pattern in the book of Acts and if that pattern reveals a purpose for this practice. And spoiler alert, I do think there is a pattern and I do think it reveals a very clear purpose for the gift of tongues or rather speaking in tongues, which I'm gonna refer to it as speaking in tongues and not the gift, because I do think maybe there are a couple of things in the Bible that are separate from that. Secondly, so that's my first aim. We're not giving a fully comprehensive biblical view. We're looking at Acts alone. Secondly, I do want to dispel a very popular, I believe false teaching that is not prevalent in our own denomination but is certainly well known to many of you, and that is the idea that you don't receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit until you speak in tongues, or even worse, that you're not fully saved until you speak in tongues. There are some out there, and this is primarily in more of the charismatic uh, circles that will teach that that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the Spirit, you don't receive All of the Spirit until it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. Some on the more radical side will say, You don't even get saved until you speak in tongues. And this teaching comes primarily from Acts 19, one of the passages that we're going to look at here this morning. In Acts 19, we see men who believed the gospel, so they were saved, they were baptized, and yet it isn't until after they believe and are baptized that Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so some people will argue since they received the spirit and spoke in tongues after they were saved, that means there is this sort of second blessing or a baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes place after salvation that is separate from what you get at salvation. And I believe what we're gonna discover this morning is that the reason we see that happen in Acts 19 is not because there is a second blessing, but rather that there's something else going on in this transitional moment in redemptive history in the book of Acts. This morning's gonna be a little bit different than what we normally do. I, I don't have any points really for this morning. There's not like an outline that, that is kind of typical of a sermon at City on a Hill on Sunday morning. Uh, we're gonna just walk through Acts and we're gonna look at passages where tongues occur Uh, We're going to make some observations, and then we're going to come back at the end. And I'm going to give you some of my own concluding thoughts on this and highlight what I actually think is more important in all of these passages than anything else, because there is something that is very important that happens in in everything that we're going to look at this morning. Let's begin in Acts chapter 1. In order to figure out the pattern of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues throughout the book of Acts, we need to remember, I believe, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts Uh, to begin. Acts chapter 1 begins where Luke's gospel leaves off. Jesus has just been resurrected. He's gathered with his disciples. Verse 3 says that Jesus stayed with them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Presumably, he continued discipling them, teaching them, commending them, encouraging them uh, through this 40-day process. Then we get to verse 8, and we really get the purpose, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 6 through 8. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit here? To give believers power to be witnesses for Jesus. And where are they to be witnesses? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which is just a fancy way of saying everywhere all over the world. Notice that the disciples, they're wondering when Jesus is gonna restore the kingdom. When is Israel going to be restored? And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. That's not for you to worry about. Here's your mission. You're to go and you're to be my witnesses to the world and the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Spirit is to give the necessary power for a believer to be an effective witness for Jesus. In our weakness, the Holy Spirit helps us by giving us power. That's what Jesus said the Spirit would do in John, isn't it? In John's gospel, what did he refer to the Holy Spirit as? The helper. What is he going to help you do? He's going to help you be an effective witness for Jesus by giving you the necessary power to carry the task out. That's it. That's the purpose of the Spirit. It was true for the disciples. Then it is true for every Christian today. And then we get to Acts chapter 2, and this is exactly what we see happening. Acts 2 verses 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the first time the Holy Spirit comes to and dwell in a believer on Pentecost. While the disciples are waiting in this upper room of this house, they receive the Spirit. The Spirit gives them the ability to literally speak in the, in the Greek in other languages. And then we see this gift carried out in the next section. It's exactly what they begin doing in Acts 2, verses 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's a key, a key phrase. Hold that in your mind for a moment. And at, this t- at the sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And I love the detail here in verse 13. But others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. (laughs) That's why they don't make sense. We can't understand them because they're drunk. Now, let me break down what is happening here, because there's a lot going on. First of all, what is Pentecost? We need to understand the significance of this day. Pentecost uh, was a festival in Jewish tradition that took place 50 days, penta, five, 50 days after the Passover. When was Jesus crucified? Right before the Passover took place. That was the whole rush to get him crucified is that once the sun went down, it was Passover and we can't do anything, right? This is why it took three days for the women to come and anoint Jesus' body with oils because they couldn't do anything during the Passover. So 50 days after this, remember Jesus was with them for 40 before he ascended. So they waited about 10 days before they received the Spirit, give or take, from the point that Jesus ascended to the Father to this moment, 50 days after the Passover. In the Old Testament, uh, this day is referred to as the Feast of Weeks. It's referenced in Second Chronicles. It's referenced actually first in Exodus 24, verses 22 through 23. And in that Exodus passage, God specifies what is required of all Israel, Israelite men For this festival regardless of where you lived in any part of the world if you were an Israelite the feast of weeks required you to show up to Jerusalem so that you could stand and give an account before the Lord in the sanctuary this is why there are so many people in Jerusalem who speak all these different languages This is making sense now, right? This is why all those people are here and hearing the gospel in their own language. They're Israelites. They believe in Yahweh. They worship the God of the Old Testament. They live out the Mosaic law, but they live in other countries. They speak other languages. And so they're all gathered together for the Feast of Weeks at this time. And two major things happen on this day while they are all together. The first thing that happens is there's an undoing of a curse, in pentecost there's an undoing of a curse anyone want to take a guess at what that curse might be babel the curse of babel remember all the way back in genesis chapter 11 we get this very strange story about people trying to build a really tall tower up into the heavens and we find out that it's actually an act of pride and rebellion and so god as an act of discipline confuses their languages so that they're no longer able to communicate with one another this also explains by the way why there are so many nations because remember, Genesis is written by Moses. At Moses' time, there are already many nations in the world, and so you begin in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve, one people. And as you're reading this, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, if we all came from the same person, then how did we end up with these, not only neighboring nations, but at war with one another? Right? Why do, these, why do the Canaanites hate us so much? And why do we hate them so much? Where did all this enmity come from? How did we get so divided? Genesis 11 provides the, the answer for that. There was this great act of rebellion and God curses humanity by mixing their languages so that they can't communicate and continue in their act of rebellion. And so they disperse into other parts of the world. This confusion of language was a curse and it, and it proved itself out to be a curse for the people of God. The people of God in Israel, as you read the Old Testament, they are charged to go and be a light to the Gentile nations. That's their mission. But it's very difficult to do that when you can't communicate with the nations. When you can't, and and when you're not able to communicate effectively the, the statutes and the commandments of God, it's a very big hurdle to get over and it proved itself to be too big of a hurdle for Israel. They failed continuously. There was also some sin and pride involved as well in their failures, but language proved to be a curse for them. So in many ways, Pentecost is an undoing of this curse. At Babel, God confused the languages of prideful, rebellious men, but now at Pentecost, the hearts of these prideful, rebellious men will hear the gospel in their own language. Language will no longer be a barrier for the Holy Spirit who comes and indwells in believers to carry out the message, to be the light to the Gentiles as the scriptures prophesied. The Spirit is going to give power to be an effective witness, just like Jesus said, even over and above other languages. But there's also something else going on here. There is a fulfillment of a prophecy that takes place as well. Right after this explosion of languages, people are left wondering what in the world is happening right now, right? And Peter stands up, he begins to speak. This is Acts 2 verses 14 through 16. It says, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. (laughs) Apparently this was an issue back then too. Interesting. (laughs) They thought they were drunk. And so then you get to verse 16, Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then in verses 17 through 21, Peter is going to quote Joel 2, 28 through 32. Listen to what he says. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Slaves also get the spirit, he's saying. Verse 19, and I will show the wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, sounds like the day that Jesus was crucified, and the moon to blood, likely the blood moon that took place that night, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the prophet Joel prophesies of this day when God is going to pour out his spirit, not only on the Jews, but on all flesh. He would pour out his spirit, not only those on, or who were living in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and on those who were living to the ends of the earth as well. Prior to this, the spirit only came upon prophets and leaders of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But now in the New Covenant, everyone is a prophet. Everyone is a priest. We have the priesthood of all believers and everyone gets the spirit, the prophethood of all believers as well. This is what Moses, by the way, longed to see. This was his dream. Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses said, if only the Lord's people, all of them were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on all of them. Peter is saying, there are now, just like Joel said, the spirit will be poured out on Jews and Gentiles. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this will continue to happen until the day of the Lord, which is what? The second coming of Jesus. This is going to be the, the, the age of grace, the age of the new covenant, wherein it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a male or a female, a slave or a master, like Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians and throughout his letters. You get the Spirit if you call on the name of the Lord. It's truly an Oprah moment. You get the Spirit. You get the Spirit. You, right? I mean, everyone gets the Spirit. You've got to call in the name of the Lord, though. Pentecost is an important day because it sets the expectation for how the Spirit is going to operate in the last days. He's going to be poured out on all people, regardless of ethnicity, gender, class. And this pouring out is going to be accompanied sometimes by visions, dreams, prophetic speech, and other supernatural abilities. So get this because this is very important. Pentecost represents a transitional moment between the old covenant and the new covenant. If you've ever seen a a Broadway musical or if you've been to a play, uh, there's what happens right in the middle of it. There's an intermission, right? It signifies act one is over and act two is about to begin. That is what Pentecost signifies for the people of God. Act 1, the Old Covenant concluded. Act 2, the New Covenant about to begin. It's the same story, a lot of the same characters, some of the same rules. But we're moving on now to this New Covenant. Pentecost is this transitional period in between. It's a a moment that, that signifies that what God has been prophesying for years and centuries and even millennia is about to take place. Now with that in mind, let's look at two other instances of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts because it only takes place three times in Acts. We think of the book of Acts as a place where like people were speaking in tongues everywhere. It only happens three times in the book of Acts. So let's look at Acts 10. And and with Pentecost in mind, I think these instances begin to make a little more sense as to why they're happening and what's going on. What is God up to in these, in these, in these uh, passages? Look at Acts chapter 10. We're gonna read verses one through five. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Pause there for a moment. What do we know about Cornelius? Is he Jewish? No, he is Roman. He lives in Caesarea, which historically we know was the center of the Roman administration within all of Judea. So this was a hotbed for Roman culture, Roman life. Not only is he Roman, but he's a centurion, which means that he is in the military. He's a commander of roughly 100 men, centurion. He belonged to the Italian cohort, which sounds a little bit like the family, right? <laughs> um, you, have to, you have to do this when you, the family. Again, Look at verse 3. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. So pause for a moment. What did Peter say the spirit would do at Pentecost as a fulfillment of Joel? He would pour himself out on all flesh. And what would they do? One of the things, they would see visions. What is Cornelius having right now? A vision. Weird. Verse 4. And he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord. And he said to him your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. The angel tells him uh look you need to go and find a man named Peter and so he does it. He sends men from the Italian cohort. They go to get Peter. Meanwhile, the spirit is also working on Peter as well. Peter has this trippy vision about unclean animals. God tells him to go and eat, and he's like, no way, I would never eat anything unclean. But remember, this is a transitional moment. Things that were once unclean are now no longer unclean. That's exactly what God says. If I I have called it not not unclean, it's not unclean, is essentially the, the translation there. And so you move on. Read verses 19 through 20. It says, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter goes with the men that Cornelius sent back to Cornelius' house. Cornelius shares everything that the angel said to Peter. Peter remembers the dream about the unclean food and realizes it's not only about food, but also people, because remember Gentiles were unclean prior to this moment. And so he realizes, well, if if Gentiles are no longer unclean, I might as well share the gospel with them. So he begins to preach the gospel to them. And then look at verses 44 through 46. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Sounds like Pentecost, doesn't it? This whole thing took place specifically, and you gotta connect with this, so that Peter, an influential and important leader in the early church, could see it happen and could confirm to other Jewish Christians that God indeed was pouring out his spirit on all flesh, including the Gentiles. When Peter stood up on Pentecost in Acts 2, And he said that Joel too is being fulfilled. The spirit is being poured out on all flesh. There were only Jewish people standing around there. It's pretty unconvincing to be like, look what God's doing. He's pouring himself out on all flesh when there's not all flesh represented, right? But now in Acts 10, Cornelius and his whole household received the spirit and they just in the same way as Acts two described began speaking in tongues as well just like at Pentecost. There's no denying this now. The Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. I can confirm it, Peter is thinking. And he does in Acts 15. In Acts 15, we find the Jerusalem council, a council of church leaders in the early church who are trying to decide whether or not when a Gentile comes to faith, whether or not we should circumcise them. Because there were theirs that were there thinking this is still a Jewish faith. We need to circumcise these guys. They need to become Jewish before they can become Christians. And Peter stands up and he gives this remarkable account of everything that he saw with Cornelius and his household. This is Acts 15 verses 7 through 8. It says, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them, listen, the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Did you get that? God made a choice that Peter would proclaim the gospel to Cornelius that they would believe that God would give them the spirit just as he did to the Jews at Pentecost. And Peter is saying in the same way that God gave us the Spirit at Pentecost as evidenced by speaking in tongues, he has now given his Spirit to the Gentiles as well as evidenced by speaking in tongues. It was important for Cornelius to receive the Spirit and to speak in tongues so that Peter could witness it and testify to the rest of the church concerning God's faithfulness to carry out his promise beginning in Pentecost. Pentecost continues in Acts 10. It's a continuation of it. Not all flesh had received the Spirit by the time you get to Acts 10. Acts 10 sees Gentiles for the first time receive the Spirit of God and to speak in tongues in the same way as the Jews did in Acts chapter 2. There's only other one place where we find speaking in tongues happen and it's in Acts 19. I mentioned this a little bit last week. In Acts 19, Paul comes across some disciples. Um, They were disciples specifically of John the Baptist who had never heard of the Holy Spirit. They'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. So they were again, a transitional group in between covenants. They were followers of John. Who is John? John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus. Luke tells us that the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was the forerunner of the Messiah to prepare the way for the Lord. So he fulfilled in himself a lot of Old Testament prophecy. These disciples of his belonged then to the Old Covenant. And once Paul figures this out, oh, you're not New Covenant disciples. You're Old Covenant disciples. You've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. You've only heard of this coming Messiah. You don't even know who he is. He asks them, into what were you baptized? And they were like, we're baptized into John. Yeah, that's out of date. That's expired, brother. (laughs) You need the new version of it, right? And so once Paul figures this out, he proclaims the gospel to them. They believe, they're baptized, and then they begin to speak in tongues. Again, signaling a transitional period marked by the beginning of Pentecost. The spirit is doing what he said he would do. And he is bearing witness now, not to Peter, but to Paul. Paul is seeing it now. And who goes off and continues this perpetuation of church planting and writes several letters alongside Peter? Paul does. If you're going to charge these men with carrying out the new covenant, you better better make sure that they believe the new covenant. There's no doubt for them now. They've seen Pentecost carried out into multiple transitional groups. God is indeed pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Pentecost begins in Acts 2. It continues in Acts 10. It finalizes in Acts 19. You never see it happen again in the book of Acts. It doesn't. There are a lot of other signs and wonders and, and crazy things that the apostles are able to do. You never see this particular thing happen in Acts. Acts views tongues as a sign of God's fulfillment of what he said he would do at Pentecost. And when you understand this, you figure out it's not necessary for salvation. You want to know how I know that? because there are a lot of other examples in the book of Acts where the Spirit comes upon people and they don't speak in tongues. Let me give you a few of them. Acts 8, the Samaritans, pretty big group themselves. The Spirit comes upon them, there's no tongues. There's other miracles that take place. There's other signs, there's no speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 16, we talked about Lydia, The the woman who was a seller of purple goods opened up her home as a sort of a small church, house church after she came to faith. says that she receives the Spirit. She doesn't speak in tongues. The Philippian jailer, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, the one that Paul witnesses to after the earthquake, he and his whole household received the Holy Spirit. They never speak in tongues. Even the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 After he's blinded by Jesus on the Damascus Road, goes in, finds the the man Ananias who begins praying over him, lays his hands on him, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He doesn't speak in tongues. But there is something that all of these passages have in common. It's not speaking in tongues. I believe that happens in transitional moments as a way of fulfilling Pentecost and showing that God is indeed pouring out his Spirit. But there is something that links all of these things together. You want to know what it is? Every time the Spirit comes upon somebody in the book of Acts, something follows. What is it? It's baptism. It's baptism. After Peter preaches at Pentecost, Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were out of that day about 3,000 souls. In the Samaritan account, in Acts chapter 8, after they come to faith, Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. After the conversion of the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, when he makes it to Ananias house, he lays his hands on him. The spirit falls upon him It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house, this is in Acts 9, 17 through 18, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he arose and was baptized. Baptized. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 47 through 48. After receiving the Spirit and speaking in tongues, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? and he commanded them be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Lydia, Acts chapter 16, after she receives the spirit, verse 15, and after she was baptized, her and her household as well. The Philippian jailer, Acts 16, verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Acts 19, verse five, the disciples of John, and on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of God, when He comes upon people, does not always accompany them with speaking in tongues. You have to understand that. That was something that was transitional, that fulfills Pentecost in a really powerful and perfect manner. But what does always follow the work of the Spirit and the life of a believer in the early church is they are baptized. You've got to understand people of God, modern Christian men and women, there is no such thing as believing the gospel and then going, I think I need to really think about whether or not I wanna be baptized. I think I need to pray about it. That doesn't exist, that's not real in the Bible. In the Bible, you know when you're ready to be baptized? When you receive the spirit of God, that's it. There's no waiting game, there's no thoughts, I'm going to tell you as your pastor, you need to pray about a lot of things that you do. This isn't one of them. <laughs> it's clear. You are ready if you've received the Spirit. And I'm going to say this, and it, it's, some of you are not going to like this. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's disobedience if you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian. Let's just call it what it is. It's not a suggestion. It is a commandment of God. Most High, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, then your Lord has commanded you, be baptized. Who are we to say no to the Lord? Let me give you a truth. Again, you're going to hate it. (laughs) To resist Jesus' baptism is to reject Jesus' Lordship. To resist Jesus' baptism is to reject Jesus' lordship. Some of you call Jesus your Lord and you've never even identified with him publicly through the first commandment he gave you, which is be baptized. He commands this. Who are we to say no to him? Who are we to stand up to our Lord and say no? We're effectively denying his lordship over our life when we do that. There's a lot of interest. In Christian circles, there has been for many years over debating, talking about speaking in tongues and various other spiritual gifts. Folks, that's a distraction. It's a distraction to your faith. Rather than being concerned by spiritual gifts, I want you to be concerned with obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to the Lord Jesus. Ask yourself... Do I desire to obey God? Do I desire it? Do I want to obey my Lord? That's the most important question. Beginning with the first commandment that he gives us, be baptized. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Teaching them all that I have commanded, to observe all that I have commanded. For some of you, I expect to baptize you soon. (laughs) I want you to pray about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a clear word, a clear word about the the importance of the things that matter and and the the non-importance of the things that don't matter as much. Your spirit works in mysterious ways, God, and and we, we confess that. It seems pretty clear in the book of Acts, at least, why your spirit moves in this specific way, and that is to show your faithful fulfillment of a promise that you made through the prophet Joel hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago at this point that you will indeed pour out your spirit on all flesh, regardless of ethnicity, gender, class. Everyone stands on level ground before you. And we thank you for that. We thank you that regardless of the kind of person that comes through these doors on a Sunday morning or any other day of the week for that matter, that they, if they call upon the name of the Lord, will receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. We thank you for that. Doesn't matter about your past. Doesn't matter about the things you've done. If you confess your sin and repent and believe, we believe the word that you will pour out your spirit. We're grateful for that. Would you God show the eminent importance to us of following the first commandment of the Lord To be baptized after we have identified ourselves within him, after we have confessed him, Lord, would you allow us, would you give us power, empower us to obey him as Lord? We recognize we're not going to do it perfectly every day, and so would you give us repentance as well, that we might continually walk, not in our power, but your power, in obedience to Jesus how we love you, how we thank you. We thank you for the three baptisms this morning. We pray these things in the name that is above all names, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 God bless you. Take those cards, those mark inviter cards, and go and invite someone to church. Say, come to church with me, man. We'll see you next time.